In October 2019, my coworkers and I handled an exceedingly rare group of prints by a 19th-century German photographer named Albert Frisch, who was responsible for some of the first photographs taken in the Upper Amazon. These prints, taken in 1869, are of a moment when the land and people were on the cusp of changing forever. We were all taken by their beauty. Astounded by the technical skill required to make these prints, and amazed at the rarity of what we were handling. After all, while prints by Frisch are held in a very small number of public collections, this was the largest collection of prints to appear in private hands, and the first that I had ever personally seen. The group, which was made up of 95 individual images and one three-part panorama. Sold for a little over eighty-one thousand dollars. When I started looking deeper into Albert Frisch's story, I fell into a rabbit hole. The more I learned, the deeper the hole got. When the story did come to a close, I had discovered much more than I ever imagined about this photographer, the native people of Brazil, and our complex history with a very special plant. This is the expert eye. In describing the Amazon, you get to use a lot of the word "largest." It has the world's largest rainforest. It hosts the largest biodiversity on the planet. It transports the largest volume of water of any river system, and is around four thousand miles long. Look at a picture of the Amazon basin on a map, and you will see that it covers over a third of the South American continent. There are around 2.5 million species of insects, over 1,400 species of mammals, 2,500 kinds of fish, 80,000 plant species, and in the 19th century, there were once an estimated 2,000 identified tribes and nations of the indigenous South Americans living there. Albert Frisch could not have been born farther away than the humid, wild Amazon jungle. He was born in Bavaria and had been orphaned as a young boy. He attempted several vocations before seeking a new life in South America by way of Argentina. After a failed attempt as a print dealer and being highly skilled in lithographic reproduction, he turned to photography, relocating to Brazil's then capital Rio de Janeiro in 1873, where he gained employment with a man named Georg Leutzinger. Who had a printing and publishing operation? Photography was undergoing a golden age in Brazil, partly because the emperor Pedro II had an interest in photography, and no other monarch exploited its potential as much as he did, aside from Queen Victoria. In fact, only 20 years before, in 1840, the first photograph was taken on the South American continent, right there in a Rio city square. Pedro had a particular interest in the use of photography for the sciences, and had a large collection of prints having to do with plant specimens. With this surge of interest and the backing and acute interest of royalty, several photographers not only photographed Rio, but also set their sights on what was happening outside the city. 
A big part of this had to do with showing the world what Brazil was and what was happening there. Because it was only in the early 1800s that Brazil had gained its independence. Things were moving fast. And up until this point, there wasn't a lot of imagery traveling back to Portugal and beyond. Europeans in general didn't have a great view of life in Brazil. And they had all these sort of fantasies about bloodthirsty cannibals and poverty-stricken cities. But in actuality, by the turn of the 20th century, Rio was a city that could rival many European ones. With manicured gardens, structured city planning, ornate architecture, music halls, markets, docks, and stately government halls. Frisch's boss, Georg Leutzinger, contemplated the vast, wild Amazon landscape and must have sensed that the country was on the brink of massive change. He may have also realized that a comprehensive set of images that represented not only plants and animals, but also native tribes, would be of great interest to tourists. And so he commissioned Frisch to produce a series of photographs in the undisturbed Amazon. When printed, he would put them on grand letterpress mounts and sell them to those curious about what life was like in the far reaches of the inner continent, where Europeans, and many Brazilians for that matter, had never been before. Traveling on the Amazon in the middle of the 19th century was dangerous, difficult, and slow. Travel journeys from this time are few, although I did find a very thorough book that was written only six years prior to Frisch's journey by a naturalist named Henry Bates. And while I was reading it, I realized that the two men were exploring a section of the Amazon that was nearly identical. Frisch accepted the job of working on a set of photographs. But what was the plan? It was going to take five months to capture all the images they wanted. And on top of that, there was transportation to consider, food, supplies, and photographic equipment to haul. And when was the right time to go? The Brazilian Amazon rainforest has two seasons. The rainy season runs from mid-December to mid-May. It's a bit cooler than the rest of the year, which is considered the dry season. So Frisch left in November which meant that he could get home before the wettest months of March and April. And since the water level is higher in February, he could probably get to some areas that were inaccessible at other parts of the year. But regardless of when you go, it is always hot and humid, and there are numerous threats, including, but not limited to, deadly rapids created by water rushing down from the Andes, sudden flooding, poison dart frogs, giant centipedes, mosquitoes, deadly spiders, jaguars, electric eels, vampire bats, alligators, ants, piranhas, yellow fever, and last but certainly not least, anacondas. I found Bates's book to be really helpful in understanding what it must have been like to hire a crew, stock a boat, and navigate the river. It illuminated what it must have been like for Frisch as well. Bates spends time preparing for his journey in a coastal city before hiring a two-masted boat with a crew of three and provisions. He changes crews and boats several times during his journey, 
and he learns from his mistakes along the way. By the time he's a few months in, he learns how to adequately stock his boat with food that is properly stored in tin boxes to keep the insects and water out. He figures out how to arrange his belongings to save space and keep everything dry. He stocks up on food to trade with the locals, like beads, coins, fabrics, coffee, food, and cachaça, which is similar to rum. Being an admirer of Charles Darwin, Bates's primary goal was to study the origin of the species, so a good portion of his book is devoted to detailed descriptions of plant and animal life. But he also devotes lengthy passages to village visits and his observations on the people he meets there, from the various styles of shelters he sees, to clothing and body modifications, to food both grown and caught, and the family systems and dynamics of various tribes. Bates's description of going to visit a particular village yields a listing of the numerous plants that were being grown in the fertile soil, including tobacco, corn, sugarcane, cotton, coffee, fruits, and vegetables. His description of the thatched palm houses is exactly the same as the images caught by Frisch in his photographs, which is why I am certain that if you were an enthusiast of travel accounts, a botanist, or biologist in the 19th century, having a set of these photographs in your collection would have been helpful and enjoyable. At the close of a long day of exploration, if you were sleeping on land, you might use a hammock. But if you were on the boat, you might just sleep on a mat. At night, it was sometimes hard to sleep because of the mosquitoes. Bates complains that some nights, the mosquitoes came straight at their faces, as thick as raindrops in a shower. The men would crowd into the cabins and then try to expel the pests by the smoke from burnt rags. In the daytime, a much larger and more formidable fly would swarm the boat. And when they weren't being set upon by ravenous insects, the night seemed magical. Bates described how they would generally cease traveling around 9 o'clock, fixing upon a safe spot where they could secure the vessel for the night. He described the cool evening hours as delicious. Flocks of whistling ducks, parrots and macaws, pair by pair, flew over the boat as the glowing sun plunged beneath the horizon. The brief evening chorus of animals then began, the chief performers being the howling monkeys, whose unearthly roar deepened the feeling of solitude which crept up as darkness closed around the boat. Soon after, the fireflies in great diversity of species came forth and flitted about the trees. As night advanced, all became silent in the forest, save the monotonous chirping of the wood crickets and the grasshoppers. In another passage, he writes of scores of dolphins swimming alongside the boat all night long. When he would wake in the morning, which was usually when the first light of dawn showed itself along the dark, long line of forest, he would notice that his clothes were soaked with dew, and he would drink his coffee sweetened with molasses or a ration of cachaça. River travel could be exceedingly boring and monotonous, with hours and hours spent watching as the jungle slowly passed by from your slow-moving boat. However, each boring day on the river could be punctuated by periods of extreme drama. 
Water from the Amazon flows from the glaciers in the Andes, and all of it cascades into the Amazon basin in massive waterfalls and gushing rapids. The force of the water has carved huge gorges and canyons into the rock, making navigation very difficult and dangerous. Bates described a particularly dramatic evening, soon after sunset, as they were crossing the mouth of a great tributary when a black cloud arose suddenly in the northeast and the crew scrambled to take in all of the sails before a furious squall burst forth, tearing the waters into foam. A drenching rain followed, but in half an hour, all was again calm and the full moon appeared in a cloudless sky. So this is my basis for understanding Frisch's journey as his method for travel and difficulties would have been very, very similar to Bates's. We know that Frisch was accompanied by two indigenous rowers, and he covered a route of around 1,600 kilometers from a military outpost on the border of Peru all the way to Manaus, the glitzy Paris of South America. While we don't have a lot of information about the details of Frisch's journey, we can retrace his steps by the photographs and their letterpress descriptions because they're geographically sequenced and thus chart his itinerary. So to that end, I've created a Google map with the locations I was able to identify. This was a little hard because of the mix of French, Portuguese, and native title names. And some of the locations don't bear the same name that they did 100 years ago. But regardless, I was able to chart a pretty clear map of where both Frisch and Bates were, and I'm placing the map on the blog for you to reference. So when the photographs were taken back to Loitzinger's shop, they would have been printed and then mounted on a larger sheet of heavy paper, which was a pretty common presentation for 19th century commercial photographs. Additionally, there would be letterpress title and copyright information for the photographer and printer. Now, again, for each of the photographs, the letterpress mount provides a general location where it was taken, and under that is the identification of the subject. And Frisch's photographs cover a lot of subjects. He documents 35 plant species and a number of animals as well. However, the greatest number of images document the people he encountered, which includes Bolivian traders, no less than five different native tribes, and citizens of the larger, larger city of Manaus. Many of the portraits he made are the result of layered or composite negatives. This technique was used more often than you'd think in the early days of photography. This pre-Photoshop method was ideal for situations like this, where you wanted extra sharp images, but the surrounding environment made things difficult. So once Frisch got back to the studio, he experimented with various combinations of negatives until he got a composition just right. And just a word about the photographic process that Frisch had to employ to capture these plates. Of course, the only option at the time was wet plate. So in addition to all this other gear, he would have had to have been traveling with a portable laboratory, equipment, chemicals, and fragile glass plates. Frisch would have had to have prepared the plates just moments before the exposure, then developed the negatives while they were still wet. And looking at this from a technical point of view, this is incredible, if not unbelievable. 
It is hard to deny that the result of the studio manipulation is skillful and satisfying. For example, I love his composition of a manatee pictured against a completely blank cream background. After he developed the image, he used paint to mask the background surrounding the animal so that all that's left is a manatee floating weightlessly on a sea of empty space, not unlike a butterfly on a pin. Other images, such as the one that depicts a crew of people on a riverboat, shows us a very clearly posed composition. Frisch had to do this so that he could ensure that his exposures were on point and his compositions were in focus. How can we tell? Well, in this particular photograph, each man holds up an oar as if he's in the process of paddling, although the boat is barely offshore and is pointed towards the riverbank. And just like the animals and orchids, the indigenous people are largely photographed in the same fashion, utterly posed and stick still, almost like sculptures or wax figures in a museum. It was almost as if Frisch made really no artistic distinction between human beings and orchids. In a way, he seemed to just be taking samples and moving on, just like Bates did when he collected insects and leaves. So we have to take a moment and talk for a second about captions, otherness, and prevailing attitudes about race in the last part of the 19th century. It will not come as a surprise to you that Bates, Frisch, and Leutzinger were not that much different from many other Europeans in the 19th century regarding their conceptions about race. Further, their use of the word civilized is used many, many times, mostly to describe their perception of the intelligence and to a degree humanity of the individuals they encountered. We know this because the captions of the mounts tell us so. Words are used like savage or semi-civilized. These descriptions give us a pretty clear view into the attitudes regarding people who were largely considered uncivilized savages that were lesser than in every way to Caucasians. But what I didn't really pick up on when I first looked at these photographs is the subtle way that Frisch posed and photographed individuals depending on his perception of their level of civility. When placed side by side, these differences become very clear. Upon his return to Rio, Frisch and Leutzinger edited the many negatives down to a group of 98 images. So they sold these out of the studio and they would have been likely available for purchase as a single photograph or maybe as a grouping that one could buy at a reduced rate. Apparently they were very, very popular, especially with foreign tourists. Later, in the 1870s, Frisch would sell the images out of his own shop upon his return to Germany. So I want to go back to three of Frisch's images in particular, because again, this is something I didn't pick up on until I did a deeper review of the images. These images are particularly important and worth discussing a bit. One shows an indigenous man squatting beside an earthenware pot of latex that he's extracted from a rubber tree. Another shows a rubber tree, and the third photograph shows a hut used for the production of rubber. Tribes of the Amazon have been using latex to waterproof their shoes and cloaks since 1600 BCE. 
But things changed in a really serious way around 1820, when a ship bound for Boston carried back a pair of rubber shoes from Brazil, and the orders for rubber boots came flooding in. And although Mesoamericans have figured out how to vulcanize rubber over 3,000 years before this point, in the U.S. and Europe, people started wanting rubber for all sorts of things in just about any industry you can think of. And before you know it, things took off like a freight train. Charles Goodyear developed vulcanization in 1839, and only a short time later, in 1887, Scottish inventor John Boyd Dunlop invented the first inflatable rubber tire for his son's tricycle. With the first demand for rubber came a need for a large workforce. And by the time Frisch was photographing in the Amazon, things were really heating up in terms of a need for rubber workers on plantations. And slave raids to fill those plantations had already begun. The Peruvian Amazon Company was one of the most atrocious in terms of abuse and systematic murder, and the terrors suffered at the hands of this company have been well documented. And in the many sources I read, their methods are compared to the first days of the Spanish conquest, which is really saying something when you're speaking of horrific cruelty. A grisly account by Walter Hardenberg was first published in 1912 and it covers the atrocities of the Putumayo region. And it's not an easy read, but I did it, and I felt like it was necessary, although I have to admit at many times, I felt physically ill while reading the book. The horrific treatment suffered by the native people used as slaves was so cruel that it's difficult to believe that it actually happened. It can only be described as over 200 pages of first-hand accounts of mutilation, starvation, sexual slavery, burnings, whippings, castrations, infanticide, and murder for the sake of entertainment. Hardenberg described this place as a living hell, a devil's paradise, where unbridled cruelty and its twin brother, lust, ran riot. It's hard to get a good number of how many people died during this period, but it's estimated that the number is close to 100,000. And the only thing that would stop this terror was when rubber plants were smuggled out of Brazil and taken to Southeast Asia, which eventually rivaled and defeated Brazil in the rubber production and caused a huge recession that would leave profound scars on the Amazon region. Meanwhile, across the vast ocean, in 1885, King Leopold II of Belgium surprised the world with his bold establishment of the Congo Free State in Africa. It was a privately owned state, not part of Belgium, but essentially it was an area he simply treated as a possession that existed for his own gain. Notably, the Congo Free State had its own rubber trees, and Leopold monopolized the resources of the entire state, which forced the natives to deliver all ivory and rubber to state officials, or to monopoly concession companies owned by the government. The rubber came from wild vines in the jungle, unlike Brazilian rubber. To extract it, Congolese workers would slash the trees and then lather their bodies with the latex. When it hardened, they would scrape it off their skin, which would often take their skin and hair with it. And just like in the Putumayo, the quotas for rubber were enforced with cruelty. 
Entire families were slaughtered if they failed to make quota. Ears, hands, and feet would be severed as punishment or enforcement of power. Much has been written about this particular method of punishment. Agents of the Belgian-controlled state, charged with enforcing rubber quotas, had a policy of collecting the severed hands of the Congolese who failed to make quotas. There are first-hand accounts and photographs of human limbs heaped in baskets and presented to overseers. King Leopold had a stranglehold on the press and was, up until this point, doing a pretty good job of keeping information about what was happening in his playground very quiet. And frankly, a lot of the world wasn't asking hard questions because everyone really wanted rubber. As long as it kept coming, then who cared where it was coming from and at what cost? It wasn't until the invention of something that could document what was really happening with such irrefutable evidence that no one could deny that it had to stop. George Eastman's Kodak camera was the only thing that laid bare to the world the horrible facts about what was happening in a way that the written word was having trouble adequately describing. There are a lot of instances where literature is able to describe something that a photograph just can't. But in this case, photographs would prove something beyond all doubt, something that writers had been saying all along but were not believed, simply because it was too horrible to even imagine. It was an unlikely person that would be the catalyst for change in this part of the world. A missionary named Alice Seeley Harris was armed with a Kodak camera, which was light and easy to use. And she took hundreds of photographs, documenting the atrocities carried out by the Congolese officials. And her photographs were made into lantern slides. In early 1906, Alice and her husband toured the United States presenting her images at 200 meetings in 49 cities via magic lantern screenings. No longer able to refute the truth, an international committee was sent to investigate. The genocide only ended in 1908 when Leopold was forced to annex the state under international pressure, powered by the photographs of Alice Seeley Harris. To this day, Tiny chocolates in the shape of human hands are manufactured in Antwerp. You can buy them in any chocolate shop in the city. It's unlikely that many people actually recognize the significance of the hand-shaped chocolates. It is impossible to quantify how many people died during this period, but many researchers put the number at 10 million people, which is a number that is hard to even wrap one's head around. Now, with all this in mind, I want to come back to something. In 1908, King Leopold had to annex the Congo, and at that same year, Henry Ford started selling his Model T. Without a pipeline of latex from the Congo, he turned back to the Amazon and started funding rubber plantations. He even established a city he called Fortlandia. I came upon the story looking at the photographs themselves. As someone who studies things, their thingness, their physical attributes, and their object history, that was the original scope of my review. I studied their condition, their mounting style, their rarity, and how they relate to other prints I've seen. I mean, in essence, that's my job. 
But so often in projects like this, we start looking at the physicality of an object first, and then we dive deeper into the meat of it and start to talk about motivation, relevance, impact, and reception. Just like so many things, what appears one way on the surface often has a much, much more complicated history. While tracing Frisch's progress along the Amazon, I saw with him a subject called rubber that was going to be a catalyst for change on a global scale. It would catapult Brazil into the industrial age and would create openings for those who would sacrifice other people in order to turn a profit. It also shines a light on the way that we look at other human beings and whether we view others to be equal to us or dispensable, as if a person could be an object to be studied and used like a mineral or a machine. The camera helped to document a rainforest paradise in Brazil. The camera also helped to put a stop to a brutal system of oppression. A camera is a tool. This machine can be a perpetrator of dangerous stereotypes, or it can be an agent of change and revolution. And this story shows both of its sides. It all comes down to who the person is that holds the camera and looks through the viewfinder. This episode was written by me, Amy Flieger, and edited by Yvonne Soro here in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Please visit theexperteye.org for maps of Frisch and Bates' journeys, a bibliography of sources I used for this episode, and photographs by Frisch that sold at Sotheby's in 2019.